Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Mark. And then we're going to turn to Hebrews. So if you have both those, thank you. If you have both those ready, it'll be great. Uh, In the book of Mark, we're going to go right on to the Last Supper. Which, as you know, Jesus was crucified. If we're celebrating or commemorating the crucifixion on Friday night, then you'd think Thursday we got to be thinking about the Last Supper. We got to be thinking about that time in the garden because it was Thursday that he was arrested. Um, and so there's this, there's this strange tension that's taking place as Jesus has his last meal because he knows exactly what's about to happen. But the disciples, as bright as they could be, are just not cluing into it. They, they know that they're having a meal. They know that they're, um, <laughs> they, they get to break bread, but Jesus has spoken in parables so many times before, they still haven't caught on to what's about to happen. In fact, in one part, he says, one of you is about to betray me. And they all look around and say, is it us? And when they don't get a straight answer right away from Jesus, one of the gospels said that they turn to John and they go, hey, John, ask him, is it me? You know, John, he won't, he won't talk to me directly about this. You, you ask him, is it me? And Judas at one point says, is it me, Lord? And, and Jesus says to him, it is, it is as you've said. Even then, nobody starts looking at Judas weird. Isn't that, odd? Isn't that odd to you? Jesus looks at him and says, it's you. I don't know how quietly Jesus said that. He also said that the guy who's going to break bread with me next, the, guy, the next guy I'm going to give bread to is the one that's going to be, betray me. And everybody's like, well, he says stuff like that. And when Judas gets up to betray him, Jesus looks at him and says, what you must do, do it quickly. Yeah. And everybody just assumes Judas is going to feed the poor. So there's not a lot of a connection here at this moment. When he goes to the garden to pray after the meal, he says, watch with me and pray. He comes back an hour later and they're all asleep. So there wasn't that urgency for them. They didn't know what was about to happen. Jesus knew. You know, so much of uh, our, our doctrine, our faith can be drawn from the, the last few chapters of John. And it's so rich. Uh, much of what we hear Jesus speak about the Holy Spirit, much about what we hear about abiding in him and being connected to him, all takes place in the last bit of John, the last several chapters. And all of that, all those, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of that took place that night. It's interesting when such a huge chunk of your Bible comes from one meal. And so in that section, we, we, we learn a lot, but I want to focus in on just something very simple that Jesus says as they have that meal. We're familiar with this because if you've been a believer for any period of time, you've taken communion. And when we take communion, the scripture says every time we take communion, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know when's the last time you thought of it that way, but when we take that juice and we take that bread, we are commemorating the death of Jesus. You might say, well, that's not something I want to remember. I don't want to think about that. But it is in that that you find your life, that you find your redemption. And what we know about communion starts here. This is the first. This is the first of him breaking the bread and and, and handing them the wine and saying this is what it means. In Mark chapter 14. Says while they were eating, this is Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take it, this is my body. 
And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will, not, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Now, I, I would bet you, I don't gamble, but I would bet you a lot of money if I did that none of the disciples are cluing into what this means. And they might be a little, little freaked out. You remember, it wasn't that long ago when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't truly have a part of me. And as soon as he said that, pretty much his whole crowd left. He said, no, you're getting too weird for us. We like your early stuff before you went electric. We like, we like your early albums. Wish you'd play some of your greatest hits. You're starting to say things that are kind of sounding cannibalistic. So a little bit vampire here. So I can't imagine what the disciples think when he says, this is my flesh. Eat it. We think that's fine now because we've been eating crackers all our Christian life. And we're like, well, yeah, this is the blood. This symbolizes the body of Christ. But can you imagine the first time he says it? This is my body. Eat it. I imagine most of them just did what we all would do if we were disciples of Jesus. We'll talk about this later. We'll discuss this later. Just act like you know what's going on. Eat the bread. We'll all figure it out later. Maybe we'll ask some questions at an appropriate time. He gives them the, the wine and he says this. He says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. And in that, in that statement, I'm sure it didn't ring true with them yet. But it, it harkens back to what's said in Isaiah 53, that, that his blood would be poured out for the many. That by his own sacrifice, the many would be justified. That he'd be poured out as an offering. Here he said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. And I don't know how often you use that phrase, new covenant, but it is foundational to who we are. I've, I, we've, we, a few years ago, we did a study in Hebrews in our Wednesday night services. And, and what's cool about Hebrews is that it speaks in depth about the old covenant, but it, it, it speaks about how the old was good, but the new is better. It talks about how angels are great, but Jesus is better. It talks about how the old high priests were good, but Jesus is a perfect high priest. It talks about the old covenant being a good thing for that season, for those people. But now we stand in a new covenant. We have to have a revelation as believers that we are part of a new covenant. Nothing against the old covenant, but we're part of a new covenant. The new covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That doesn't break us off completely because the Bible says we're like that wild vine that's been grafted into the original. There are elements of the old covenant that still come through, but there's some major things that have changed. Isn't that right? We know that God still keeps his word to the, to the, to the children of Abraham. We know that God still hasn't broken any promises and doesn't plan to, but in Hebrews it says, while there's a new way into the Holy of Holies, the old way is passing away. He tells them, if you neglect the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there's not another one for you. What he's saying is, guys, you can't just keep killing animals and hoping it'll work. Because now there's a new way into the Holy of Holies. There's a new way to God. We have a new covenant. A covenant is like a treaty. It's a deal. It's a promise. And our covenant with God is the foundation of everything that comes through that blood. In Hebrews, let's go ahead and turn there. I just want to read what it says. And it it might sound strange to you depending on your background, depending on how much you've read and studied this before, but that's okay. Uh, Of course, I'm always open to questions after, but 
This is foundational to who we are. In Hebrews chapter 10, And then we'll come back to Hebrews 9, but I just want to start in Hebrews 10. We'll, we'll, we'll do it a little reverse here. Hebrews 10, verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. What's he talking about? He's talking about in the Old Covenant, in the Jewish tradition. And that, that tradition wasn't something they came up with. God gave them that. God said, this is how you're going to come to me. Because as we know, sin... The most damaging thing about sin is that it separates us from God. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. He's not talking about your heart stopping beating, although that is a result. But he's talking about the same death that Adam and Eve felt the moment they sinned. You see, they looked around and said, we're still breathing. God was wrong, but he wasn't wrong. Because the moment they sinned, they were separated from God. And separation from God is death. Because he's life. That's the thing that we got to get is that he is life. He's the source of all life. He's the source of all good. He's the source of all love. Nothing good comes separate from him. You might say, well, I had good things before I knew him. That's because he's still in this earth. Even though the earth is under a curse, even though things are broken, even though things are messed up, we still have, have his light on the planet. There's still elements of good around here. There's still things that are good, but all that good comes from him. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting or shadow. That means he's never not good. But since he's perfect and since he's holy, for them to come to God and have sin means that either A, he'd have to stop being holy and perfect, or B, we would have to You know, either he stops being holy or we die because you couldn't bring sin in the presence of a holy God. Something would have to give. Can I ask you a question? Just think about this. What if tomorrow you woke up and there was no justice anymore? People could steal, kill, assault, do all those things and there would never be any justice. They'd never be brought to justice. It all went fine. You could do that and nobody would ever stop you. Nobody would ever bring you to, to, to a judge or anything. There'd just no, never, never be any justice anymore. What would we have? We'd have anarchy. We'd have chaos. It would fall apart. You wouldn't feel. I mean, when you're the one that gets away with something, you feel good. But when someone takes something from you, you don't feel so good. Someone kills your kids. You don't want them to get away with it. If God stopped being holy, there'd be no justice left in the world. He is perfect. Sin is us rebelling and rejecting God. So we're the ones that put the distance between us and God. Here's the good news. From the moment we sinned, God had a plan to bring us back to him. The scripture calls this the reconciliation. The Bible actually says that we have the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ, the Bible says on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The whole story of history is a story of reconciliation. You might have thought God was mad at you, but I'm here to tell you that God so loved you that he sent Jesus to die for you. 
that the story of your life and the story of history is a story of God bringing you back to him, even though we're the ones that push, put the distance between the two of us. So here's what happens. In the old covenant, he chooses these people. He says, Abraham, you're going to have kids. And your kids are going to have kids. And the kids' kids are going to have kids. And, and there's going to be a whole nation. And he says this to an old man who's never been able to have kids. But he says there's going to be a whole nation. And through you and your kids and your grandkids and your great, 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 great grandkids, the whole earth is going to be blessed. So he calls these people, the Israelites, his people. But his people, they're just as messed up as the rest of us. They sin, they, they, they disobey, they rebel, they grumble, they do all these things. God said, I want you to come to me. I want you to know me. I want you to be able to, to speak to me, to be in my presence. And so what he does is he appoints high priests. And the high priests were there to represent the people to God and God to the people. The high priests were there to go between the people and God. So when the people sinned, there was somebody who would go to God and say, God, we all messed up. That's what we do. Here is a sacrifice. It might sound barbarian to us now that God would demand an animal be killed. But it's not because God just loved blood. It's because that was either that or you be killed. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there'd be no remissions of sins. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus came that we might be reconciled to God. So why did they kill an animal? Why did they kill a little lamb, a perfect little lamb that didn't do anything to anybody? Because it was a symbol of what Jesus would do for us. And here it said what we read in Hebrews is that every priest has to stand daily ministering and offer time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Why does he have to keep doing it? Because we keep sinning. He has to keep doing it because we keep sinning. We get messed up. So this priest would have to keep offering sacrifices. And every year there'd be this great day of atonement where there was a great sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he had to do it every year. And every year and, and daily things had to die. The animals had to die for us. That might, you might hear that and say, well, that's just old stuff. I mean, that's, that, that has nothing to do with me in 2016, but it does. Because through that we understand what Jesus did for us. He says here, that those sacrifices could never take away sins. I've used this example before, but uh, the, the kids have all go down, gone downstairs. The youth have gone downstairs, right? So we can talk about them behind their backs. Unless they listen to the podcast. Then we're all in trouble. But you guys are in trouble with me. We've talked, we're going to talk about the youth behind their backs. Junior high kids have been lied to. They've been lied to by, by the Axe Body Spray Company. Particularly junior high boys. They've been told, doesn't matter how much you stink, if you spray yourself, girls will go after you. But you know how terrible that smells and how, how you can't breathe around that kid that just came from football practice but didn't think he needed to shower and, and just sprayed himself, just soaked himself, and it covered the smell. But for, at what cost, guys? At what cost? You could smell him coming down the hallway from a mile away. That's what happened to us. I mean, these, the blood of these animals could cover our sin, but could never take them away, could never cleanse you completely. It covered, it atoned for your sin. But you were still sinful people. We were sinful people. They were sinful people. It says in verse 12, but he, that's Jesus, 
having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And I've told you this before, but the high priest in the Old Testament never sat down because if you sat down, it meant you were done. There was no more sacrifice. You never sat down. You always stay standing because there was always work to be done because the people keep sinning. But Jesus sat down because his work was finished. There was one sacrifice for all time. It goes on and says this, <clears throat> verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, now when was that one offering, guys? Let's just, just think about it. When was the one offering? That was on the cross when Jesus gave his life. By one offering, here's the trade-off, his life for all of ours. You might think that's not fair. How could one person die for so many? He could do it because he was perfect and never sinned. Had he been a sinful man, his death would have been for him. He would have had to die for his own sins, but he was sinless. He was perfect. He never disobeyed God. He never rebelled. So the sin he bore was the sin of the world. God planned this before, before time began. Before we ever sinned, God had a plan in place. Does that mean that God made Adam sin? No. But God knew that he would, and he planned this. That's how greatly you've been loved. That's how greatly God cares about you. When we talk about the Son of God, God didn't have a wife and a kid. The Son of God is, the, is, is just the best phrase we can come up with, but Jesus was part of that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three, three different parts, but all one at the same time. You know, I, take, I could take an egg, and that egg has a shell, that egg has a white, and that egg has a yolk. The yolk never turns into the shell, and the shell never turns into the white. They're all separate, right? And each of them is egg. If I gave you a yolk, you wouldn't say, this is not egg. It's not egg till it has the other parts. No, you'd say, this is egg. If I, you know, a, a shell, yolk, white, it's all egg, but the yolk can never be called the shell, and, and the white can never be called the yolk, and so they're, they're distinct, so it is with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're one. They're all one. They're all God. But they're three separate parts. So when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, it's not like Jesus is running around in heaven as a two-year-old. You know, someday I'm going to grow up, and, and God looks out his window and says, oh, I love that boy. Oh, I love that boy. But I'm going to have to send him to die. That's not what happened. This is God, in a sense, sending himself on our behalf. This is God's putting himself in our place. This is how much you've been loved. We were the one that rebelled against him. We deserved the death. But he says, no, I'm not willing that you should perish, but that you would have eternal life. I'm not willing that any should perish. I'm not willing that you die. So I'll die in your place. And here's what he says. He says in verse 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What does that mean? By one offering, he made us perfect. You may not feel perfect right now. You may not act perfect, but there's been a change in you. By the blood of Jesus, you're clean. But for the rest of my life, there's that sanctification that took place the moment I got saved, and there's the continual work of Jesus in my life until he comes again. Those are two things, but they go together. So when I got born again, I went from sinful, dirty, dead, to clean, righteous, alive. But for the rest of my life, I still have imperfections that Jesus is working out. 
that he's working in me, that he's perfecting, that he's cleansing. We all know that if, the, if we had to just be good to get to heaven, none of us would make the cut. Nobody would. The only guy that would have was Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. What covenant? The new covenant. This is the new deal I'm going to make with them. He said this to people that had a good deal with God. Listen, the old covenant sometimes gets bashed. But let me tell you, these were the one group of people that God made a treaty with. That God made a, that God said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. They had a good deal. But then he promises them, in those days, and this comes from Jeremiah, in those days, this is the covenant that I will make with them. This is the covenant I will make with them. Verse 16, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What a powerful statement. Their sins, their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Does that mean that God has no ability like to remember this? Like, does that mean that every time you tell your testimony in church, God is saying, what? <laughs> you did what? No, that's not what he means. It means that it'll never be brought to your account again. It'll never be brought against you. That as far as he's concerned, that's, that person is dead. Can you imagine every time somebody reads the Bible and they read about the Apostle Paul before he got saved, every time they read it out loud, God's like, what did you say? What did he do? That's not the case. Come on. I've heard people say something like that. It's always been a little puzzling to me, like God's surprised. Now, he's aware of it, but as far as he's concerned, it's not on your record. It's on Jesus' record. Your sins got transferred to Jesus' record. Jesus went to the cross, a righteous man who went to the cross as an unrighteous man. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You should be and are called righteous. The righteousness of God, which the righteousness of God is perfect. I know it's a popular thing to say, I'm just a dirty old sinner saved by grace. And I know where you're coming from when you say that. And I appreciate it. Where you're coming from is that place of humility saying, I still need Jesus and I'm no better than you. We're all sinners saved by grace. I get that. But the Bible says something happened when you became born again. You ceased to be a sinner and you became a righteous person. You say, but I still sin. But when you understand who you are in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. Then you'll begin to live righteously. For the rest of our lives, I don't think anybody will obtain perfection until that day. The Apostle Paul even said, I'm not there yet, but I'm stretching for it. He still had his days where he probably felt, man, I'm not doing it. But let me ask you something. If your child every day, if you convinced your child, now you would never do this because it'd be child abuse, but if you convinced your child that they were a dog, and every day they thought they were a dog. They walked around on their, on their all fours. They barked. They ate out of a dog dish. And you said, yeah, you're a dog. You're a dog, but you should act more like a boy. Well, they're going to act like a dog because that's who they think they are. You don't say, you're a dog. You say, you're a boy. Now act like a boy. But I like, 
I like, you know, returning to my own vomit. I like, I like eating out of the dog dish. I like just going to the bathroom wherever I want. No, you're a boy. Stand up and act like a boy. That's what the New Testament is full of scriptures like that. You are. This is who you are in Christ. You're righteous. You are in him. You are made complete. He says, he says, this is who you are. You are now in Christ. You are now the children of God. You are light. Therefore, Ephesians says, you are light. So now walk as children of light. That's the order. You have to know who you are so you can walk like you are. So I'm not one of those people that's going to tell you, well, because of this, we can just do whatever we want. Why would we want to? Now that we know who we are, we can be who we are, just like Jesus. Now, here's the cool part. Let's go back to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is great because it really goes deep into the old tabernacle that that Moses set up amongst the Israelites. And, And God, the Bible says that God gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. You know, God did not give Moses the, the Coleman plan for the tabernacle based on how well it'd fold up. And, uh, you know, how many people you could fit and, and whether it be rain resistant. Yeah, he did all that. But the plan for the tabernacle, the Bible says, and this is amazing to me, but he says the plan for the tabernacle was an echo of something unseen. It was the echo of the way it was in heaven. So he says the plan for this earthly tabernacle was based on a heavenly design. Can you imagine that? That somehow the order of things echoed the way things were in the unseen, the things we couldn't see. So you might think Moses just designed it. Moses didn't design it. God designed it. They laid it out exactly how God said, and everything had a purpose. And tonight, we don't have time to go into every purpose for everything, but even the smallest details had a reason. Because even the smallest details were echoes of what was going on in heaven. And here it says in chapter 9, and we're going to kind of breeze through this a little bit faster than I normally would. I'd normally take a lot more time with the details, but we're going to move through for the sake of uh, our mission tonight. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Did you hear that? There's divine worship, but it was being done through an earthly sanctuary. And then he says this, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which there were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which had budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And I'm going to echo the writer here. I wish we had time to speak in detail. But just for a minute, let me explain this. Imagine a giant canvas fence that is the outer, outer area, okay? So first of all, the only way you could even go into that area was if you were a Jew. If you were Gentiles like me, you'd have to stand on the outside and look in. And on the inside, in that outer court, people could come in. Israelite people could come in, but there was a basin. They'd have to wash their hands. There was all these different things. They'd have to cleanse themselves first before they went even further. Then beyond that, there was this court. There was a a, a holy place, but it wasn't the holy of holies. And so he calls it the outer court here. He calls it the, um, he says, this is called the holy place. This is this part right here. And in this place, the outer holy place, there's the lampstand, 
There's the table and the sacred bread. Each one of these things meant something. Then you went beyond that. And we're into the Holy of Holies. And he says there, in this place, there was a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which there was the golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod, which had budded, the tables of the new covenant, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Okay, so you have this giant area. There's, a, there's like a tent fence surrounding it. Then you have an inner area. So in the giant area, if you're an Israelite, part of the covenant, you can come in. But that second area, you can't come in unless you're a priest. Then there's a holy of holies. And I don't care if you're a priest, unless you're the high priest, you can't go into that inner place. And hey, buddy, you might be the high priest, but you can't just come in any day you want to. It has to be the one day you're allowed to come in there. And can you imagine one guy once a year can go into that place? Think about it today. We're about to read that there's a new way into the Holy of Holies that came through Jesus where we can go anytime we want. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine standing on the outside looking in going, I wish I could go in. I wish I could go in there, at least to the outer court, but you can't. And then the people in the outer court, like the, the surrounding area saying, I wish I could go into the holy place, but you can't. And then the people in the holy place, the priests in the holy place saying, I wish it was the high priest. Or even the high priest saying, I wish it was the day of atonement. But even they were freaked out because there were so many rituals. And you go, God, why are there so many rituals? And I'll tell you, because even that high priest had sin. It was just like you and me. He had sin. And no matter how many offerings you offer, we still mess up. So he had to go through all these ritual cleansings. The Bible says he had to sprinkle even the offerings. He had to sprinkle everything with blood to cleanse it. It says even the offerings had to be sprinkled because they touched sinful people. You might say God is just being weird. He's just going extreme. This was God saving their lives. Because in that holy of holies was the pure, unadulterated presence of God. And if they'd walked into that place without being cleansed, they would have dropped dead. And it's not because God wanted to kill them, because God didn't want to kill them. It's because God was holy, and sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. So something's got to break. Something's got to bust. He says this, he goes on, and he says in a, verse 6, now these things when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, and that, that is the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Can you guys identify with that? I mean, here we're talking about sin, like open rebellion. But hey, <laughs> there's, the, there's just the sin of we didn't know better. Even when we're trying, we didn't know better. We just did it. I wasn't, trying to, I wasn't trying to rebel, but I, I realized now I was. He said we, he'd offer sin he'd sacrifices. In other words, there were things people didn't confess to because they didn't even know they did it. God covered that. Then he says this. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tab- tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Now hear me on this. What is he saying? He's saying those old rituals that they went through were good. And they might, they would clean you up. They would make you clean enough that you could live and survive an encounter with God. 
but it wouldn't make you perfect in conscience. It wasn't able to change your very nature from sinner to righteous. It was able just to cover, to atone. But he says in verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come. Guys, we're in the middle of the good things to come right now. When Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. What's he talking about? The tabernacle was just a copy. Jesus entered through the original with his own blood. Didn't use the blood of animals. Didn't use the blood of me or you. He shed his own blood. And the scripture says this. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. And when he says for all, you're part of the all. Jesus entered it once for all of us. Having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption is just a simple word which means to buy us back. Buy us back from slavery that we, get, we brought on ourselves. You know, there are places in the world where people still sell themselves into slavery. You might think that that's weird. There are places in the world where families sell their kids to slave, slavery. And when their kids are set free and brought back to their parents, the parents do it again. Not terrible. But there are parts of the world where somebody feels they have no choice. They sell themselves into slavery. We sold ourselves into slavery. We earned it. But here's what he did. He obtained eternal redemption. Do you ever feel like you know you've been saved? But maybe, just maybe, you've just messed up one too many times. God can't possibly bring you back. The good news is Jesus obtained eternal redemption. There's no time limit. There's no, there's no expiration date on his blood that was shed. Verse 13, for the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who've been defiled, they sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. I just want to stop there and say this. This is where we're really going to come down for a landing. I want to go back to that verse. I love that he says that he is now the mediator of this covenant, of a new covenant. In fact, in another place in Hebrews, it says it's a new and better covenant based on better promises. What's better about the new covenant? Better promises. This is not like God said, the old covenant is just, uh, it's not selling, boys. We need to come out with a better deal. That's not what happened. All of history, even the old covenant was a foreshadowing of what God would do through Jesus. And I love it. He says here in verse uh, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Listen to that. In order for you to really serve God, your conscience had to be made perfect to clean it up. What did he say the problem with the old covenant was? It could never take away 
your sin. It could never make you perfect in conscience. You still had the knowledge that you were a sinner. You still had the knowledge that you fell back in your own ways. You still had the knowledge that though I got away with it, though there was a covering for this time, I'm still going to need it next year. But now Jesus died for you so that you could be made righteous just like him and that you could serve him with a clear conscience. The guilt, the feeling bad for old life that we think we're doing a favor for God by doing. I mean, he doesn't want you to feel good about it. He doesn't want you to go back and say, boy, those were the days. Oh, man, I remember we used to steal cars. <laughs> Wasn't that fun? Oh, the good old days. Now, he doesn't want you to say that. But some people feel like they're doing God a favor by carrying around the weight of that the rest of their life. But here's what he says. His blood is able to make you perfect in conscience so that you can serve the living God. God wants a group of people serving him that know that they're righteous. He wants a group of people serving him that know that they have been made the children of God. He wants a group of people serving him who no longer go around saying, I'm a sinner and I'll always sin. And they start saying, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His righteousness is being formed in me. And though I still stumble, though I still trip, that's not who I am anymore. You walk around saying, I'm a pig. It's not a weird thing for you to roll around in the mud. But if you walk around saying, I'm a child of God, then it's odd for you to roll around in the mud. There's something in you, and you know it when you got born again. There's something in you that when you tried to go back to your old ways, it felt different than it used to. You could do it over and over again. You could do it enough times that your conscience, the Bible talks about people's conscience being seared. What does that mean? You know, when you get seared, you get a burn. You can't feel. You're not sensitive there anymore. You can feel pressure, but you don't feel. That skin has been scarred. It talks about people's consciousness being seared. How does that happen? You keep doing what you used to do. Eventually, you'll say, I think God's okay with it. God's not okay with it. You just learned how to ignore him. You, you, you did it enough times that you don't feel it anymore. But he's, thank God, even for those, even for those of us that have been in that place, he's able to make you clean again and new again and fresh again and soften your heart. But here's the deal. You know what happened when you tried to go back into your old life. You may have done it. I know there's plenty of people that got free and then went back for a bit. They came back and said, it didn't feel good. What was that? Well, now you're a new creation in Christ. What used to feel normal doesn't feel normal anymore. What used to feel good doesn't feel so good anymore. In fact, you feel, and you might say, <laughs> you might say, I'm feeling convicted. I'm feeling condemned. That can't be God. There is no condemnation through them, to him who is in Christ Jesus. I absolutely agree. But here's the deal. There is a godly sorrow which leads to repentance, the Bible says. That means there's a part of you that will say, I shouldn't be doing this. I don't want to be doing this. You repent, and then it says it leads to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. That word salvation is not just talking about the one, just you getting saved, you come to the altar getting saved. Salvation means rescue. So when you come back and you fall back into that old, those things again, and you stumble back into those old things, here's the good news. There's a reason you don't feel good about it. It's because you are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, and that's not your nature anymore. There's a place, oh, I love it in Ephesians when it talks about talk, the things you say. It says, coarse jesting, 
foolish talk, these things, this, this, the, the things you used to say that you don't say anymore. He says, he says, let's keep that far from us because it's not fitting for saints. It's an interesting statement. He's calling you a saint, which means a holy person. And he's saying, keep that far from your mouth because it doesn't fit you anymore. You could have cursed like a sailor, sailor in your old life. You could have just been, you've been the biggest gossip. You could have been the meanest person. And you used your tongue to wound rather than to heal. But now it doesn't fit you anymore. See, if you figure that you still are that same sinner that you were back then, then you won't feel weird about going and doing those things again because that's who you are. But when you understand this is who I am now, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became sin, so I might be righteous. Here's the deal. Then, all that stuff doesn't fit you anymore. It's like clothes that don't fit you. It's like a life that doesn't fit anymore. I urge you today, let's not make light of the blood of Jesus. (laughs) Is there anybody that the blood of Jesus isn't strong enough for Is there any sin that the blood of Jesus is not great enough for? In the same sense, let's not make light of it and treat our lives like they're the same as they were. We're different now. Let's not just sit on the couch saying, well, I'm clean. I'll take it to heaven. That's all I need to get done. Let's just sit on the couch. I don't know why I use the southern accent. Those are my relatives. I love them very much. I was just... He says... He made us perfect in conscience that we might serve the living God. What do you do with your new life now? You're clean. He cleaned you up so you'd have a purpose now. Yeah. Amen. Let's do that. He cleans you up. He rescued you so you may go and rescue. He cleans you up so that you might find others. He took you out of prison so you could go unlock some prison doors. We are now His. You, weren't, you didn't have the the ability, the guts, you didn't have the, the right to be doing the will of God back in your old day. But now, now you're clean. I want you to know that. I want you to know you're clean. I want you to identify with what God says to the high priest Joshua in the book of Zechariah when Satan comes to accuse him. And he points out that Joshua is wearing dirty clothes, soiled and dirty. Joshua, the high priest, is standing on behalf of Israel, and Israel has really failed God. And so the devil knows it. And the devil says, look how dirty he is. How dare he come into your presence filthy like this? And God says, the Lord rebuke you. Isn't this a brand I plucked from the fire? And he said, go put clean clothes on him. Put a clean turban on his head. Put a ring on his finger and tell him as long as he serves me, he has access to this place. I want you to think of what it would have been like to stand on the outer courts looking in, saying, I wish I could, I wish I could experience. I, w- I wonder if it would be like those, those Jews that finally did get into the outer, outer, outer court and said, I wish I was a priest. I could go a little further. And then the priest going into the holy place saying, I wish I could go in the holy of holies. High priest saying, I wish I could go any day, but there's one, year, one day a year, one man goes in, and now Jesus Christ has made a way that you can walk boldly into the very throne of God anytime you want. How do we take that lightly? How do we take that lightly? Can you imagine how jealous people would have been of you? 
<laughs> before you go to the Lord in prayer, before you come to the altar in the middle of praise and worship, do you go to the back and sprinkle blood on yourself? <laughs> I'm not clean, I'm not clean, I can't, I'll die. Can you imagine just having praise and worship, hands are lifted up and there's just a, just a litter of bodies along the stairs. Well, they just didn't clean themselves right. <laughs> they didn't survive the encounter, but happens. Wouldn't that be a shame? Now you can go because of Jesus Christ. You can walk in the presence of God. Scripture says we have an advocate with the Father. When we sin, we have an advocate. (laughs) He is faithfully just to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Thank God we've got an advocate. We've got a lawyer. Here's the deal. The game is rigged. The lawyer and the judge are on the same team and they're on your side. It's rigged, guys. It's not fair. The judge sent his own son to die in your place. Well, let's take advantage of it. Let's live our life as those that are redeemed. I understand that that all sin, but know your place now. Know who you are. As long as the turkey knows he's a turkey, I mean, sorry, as long as the eagle thinks he's a turkey, he'll walk around with the other turkeys. When he looks up and sees those eagles flying, he says, by golly, they look like me. Then he knows, wait a minute, I'm not like these turkeys. I can fly. As long as he's convinced he's a turkey, he'll never fly. As long as you're convinced you're the same as you always were, you'll never really be able to serve God with all your strength. But when you know you've been made righteous through the blood of Jesus, we can live a life that's worthy of him. It's worthy of our call. Amen. Stand up with me.